great singing, and as many of you know, our Cactus Campus right now and our chapel next door, our venue across campus are joining us for our, our time in the Bible. And I just want to make one comment before I pray, and that is that uh, for those of you who are from Northridge, that very shortly will be, uh, yep, there you go, all right. You're clapping for yourself. God bless you. And uh, yeah, we're... No, we're really fired up that you're here, and uh, I, I wanted to make a comment uh, about this merger that I, I think I've been making for the last year, but I, I want to just continue to hammer home because it's so important, and that is that it really has been a, a God-led venture, uh, our Better Together with Northridge. When it first started, uh, you know, about a year ago, we were very tepid about it. I was. In fact, uh, so tepid that uh, the pastors didn't even get involved. It was just a couple of board members uh, talking to board members, and that was kind of our, our value early on. And then as things progressed, we brought the pastors in. But each step of the way, uh, I cautioned our guys from getting too excited, you know, and that this has to be a God thing, and we prayerfully submitted it to the Lord. And each step of the way, he kept progressing it. And he kept opening doors. And by last summer, uh, I said to my wife, Kim, I, I think this could happen. This is really exciting. And at that point, we started to accelerate and to look at what a merger would be like. We brought in a great consultant who does this stuff. And God has been so faithful. And Kevin was right earlier uh, in our campuses and venues. Our pastor, Kevin, mentioned here that God really has been working on many hearts and minds over the last year to the point that, that it was an overwhelming majority of Northridge folks that approved this merger. And I know the Scottsdale Bible folks are excited about it. And I truly believe we're going to be better together. I, uh, I'm going to talk about this next month. It won't be a downer, but we have to understand the culture we live in. You know, things aren't getting better, are they, in the culture around us? I wish they were, but, you know, the Bible did predict that in the last days, things will go from bad to worse, and uh, we're living in a more difficult culture now than I ever thought we would, and so for churches to come together to be stronger in number and in belief and in strength can only help us as we move forward in this culture, and as we're going to hear today in our time in the Word, you know, 83% of residents of Scottsdale will not be in church today. They will not. And uh, we know that for a fact. We've done the math. And, and, and they need Jesus desperately. And, and quite frankly, they need us because we're his hands and feet. And Northridge, Scottsdale Bible, we are going to be stronger together. And, and we're bathing this in prayer. And I'm very excited to see what the Lord is going to do. And so I've chosen a perfect message for today. Not that my message will be perfect, but the theme is perfect. Uh, it, it was my wife's encouragement to talk about what I'm going to talk about today. So if you don't like it, I'll give you her email. And... Uh, <laughs> But here's the title of today's message, and I, I titled it, not her, but I, based on her encouragement to talk about what we're going to talk about today, I've entitled it Lordship, Love, and the Lost, and you'll see what we mean by that as we go along. But first, I'm going to do something, Northridge people, that I do every time before I preach. Anybody know what it is? I'm going to pray, because we always need God's blessing and to submit to his lordship in this time. So Father, I pray that as we open up your book right now, talk about the very words that you've given us, oh God, I pray this would be about your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit be working in each heart here at a Cactus Venue Chapel, those watching online, and that Father, you'd also use me, this broken, fallen vessel, God, who, uh, 
who, who, who yields before you in this moment. And I ask God that the words I say would be of you and that, Lord, the ones that aren't would not get through. And I pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. So what my wife wanted me to talk about, she sprung this on me uh, while we were in bed the other night. Don't picture that. We were just going to sleep. And uh, she said to me as we were heading to bed, she said, you know, I I want you to talk about New Year's resolutions this weekend. And I said, New Year's resolutions? I said, I I don't want to talk about New Year's resolutions for two reasons. One, people always make the same ones every year, and they never keep them. Am I right? So I've always avoided this subject. It's actually empirically valid. Uh, This is from uh, Gov, or YouGov, uh, a place that does a lot of of, uh, surveying of people. And I also confirmed this with Reader's Digest and the Nielsen surveys. You know, these are the most common New Year's resolutions that we all make every year. We want to eat healthier, get more exercise, save more money, uh, focus on self-care, whatever that means, uh, read more, make new friends, learn a new skill get a new job, take up a new hobby. Uh, The Nielsen survey uh, added that people are now making resolutions to not be as addicted to their smartphone as they are. Uh, They're also making resolutions to not drink as much booze. So it's all the same, right? People make the same resolutions every year, and yet these same studies show that less than half of those who make resolutions are still going at it six months later. So by Easter, most of us peter out. And as I was laying there talking to Kim, I thought that's why I don't want to make, uh, talk about New Year's resolutions because I'm really not into that. And, and then she said, without me even thinking about it, we need to talk to the church about spiritual resolutions. That is, we have a new year coming ahead of us as we're coming together with Northridge to be better together. What are the commitments? What are the resolutions that we can all make together as a church, each of us though individually, that might set the tone, set the pace for the year ahead and open ourselves up wide to God being able to use us? And I thought to myself, that I am into. So starting about Monday or Tuesday of this last week, as we celebrated Christmas, I started to to think and percolate on exactly what it is the Bible says that we as followers of Jesus need to be committed to as we move into the future that will galvanize our spiritual lives. And, and, And though there's plenty of things I could have picked, I mean, the list is almost endless, I obviously narrowed it down to about three, which is three that we have time for today. Three spiritual New Year's resolutions that at least are beating in my heart right now for all of you, for all of us as Scottsdale Bible Church. So here's the first New Year's resolution I believe we need to make as followers of Jesus. And I put it in the first person singular so you can personalize it. And that is that I will submit daily to the Lordship of Jesus in my life. Let me repeat that. I will submit daily to the Lordship of Jesus in my life. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, man, I was hoping you'd talk about something easier like grace or something like that. No, it's time to grow up. It's time for all of us to get much more serious and sober, strong and mature about our faith in Jesus. And this is it when you make a commitment to submit to his Lordship each and every day. 
And here's the cool thing about this, unlike the New Year's resolutions that we all tend to make on the other side of things. And that is that this is a choice that we can make. You truly can make this choice. It's not nearly as difficult and complicated as many make it out to be. You simply wake up each and every day and before your feet even hit the ground, you think of God, you think of the Lord, and you say to him, I give you the right of way in my life today, Lord. I'm going to submit to your leadership and your lordship in my life. And then you just go through your day with that kind of faith. If you don't believe me, look at Colossians 1 verse 18 and what it says about Jesus. This is a very profound summary passage that's kind of summarizing the first 17 verses of Colossians as they're setting up who Jesus is. And at verse 18, it says this. It says, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, that's you and I, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, referring to his resurrection. Now here it is, so that he himself, will come to have first place in everything. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's not a complicated book in many ways. It could not be more clear here as to what God is getting at. He wants Jesus to have first place in everything in our lives. I myopically focused on that phrase, first place in everything this week, because it kind of caught me. And that word, that phrase, first place, is one word in the Greek, the Greek word protuo, and it literally means, you ready for this? First place. It, it, it pictures back in the days of the Greeks and Romans like a, 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 a academic institution where you had the head of an academic institution, or the Socrates or Plato or whatever it was. That was the first place guy. And then you had the Greek games, the sports, and you had somebody that would be the best, somebody who's in first place. In today's world, it would be the CEO or the chairman of a board. Just think in your mind of something that you can tangibly understand in which there's one person who's in first place. That's the idea behind this word. And they're saying that Jesus needs to be that in your life. That before everything else, that's all we mean by his lordship, that his leadership, his first place status is cemented. And notice that it says everything. I do this with you guys often. That word means everything. But let's fill in the gaps. It means your marriage, your parenting, your job, your hobbies, your relationships, your entertainment choices, your dreams and ambitions. Watch this. Even your dashed dreams and your failed ambitions. He wants it all. He wants you to live your life as an open book to him in which he has sway, he has say over the things of your life. And again, I said this earlier, and I can't hammer this home enough. This is not a complicated or difficult choice. It's really not. And I don't even find this a, a very difficult thing to do. It's a relatively easy thing to do, believe it or not, to just go throughout the day and ask yourself, is he on the throne or am I on the throne? Is he on the throne or is my job, my spouse, my culture, my kids, whatever it is for you that you tend to put in first place before Jesus, what's on the throne of your life? And just simply to repent in that moment and say, I'd rather have him be my Lord, him be my leader. You just practice doing that each and every day and before you know it, 
He becomes Lord more and more of your daily routine. And let's be clear as well. I am not talking here about perfection. You know, some people kind of don't want to get this serious about their spiritual life because they think you're going to be put under this load of guilt and shame every time you mess up. Kind of if he's Lord and leader, then you can't sin. Guess what? I've been doing this, as you're going to hear, for 37 years when I made a commitment that he would be Lord of my everyday life. And my wife can attest to you, I fail every day. It's just, here's the cool thing about when he's the Lord of your life, is that when you fail, because you're walking, as John would say, in the light, not in the darkness, you're walking exposed to him. So when you fail, he simply shines a light on that, and you First John 1, 9 it. Do you guys know what First John 1, 9 says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I do that all day long. I fail, I mess up, and I usually apologize to Kim because she's a brunt of that. And then I apologize to God. And I cleanse my soul before him. So we're not talking about a sinless life. We're talking about an exposed life, a submitted life. You know, maybe this will help. I, I, I believe this for years. When you think about it, there are essentially today two kinds of Christians in our church, in our culture, in our country, even in our world. Two kinds of Christians, and, and they both go to church, they both believe in Jesus, they both speak the same language, they both read the same Bible, know the same people, give to the same causes. But if you could peer into their hearts as to who is really on the throne, you'd see a very big difference between these two types of Christians. Let's peer into their heart right now. Let, let's look at Christian why. A Christian Y has, like we all do, about eight or so areas that round out his or her life. They have an intellectual thought life of the things that come in and they think about and process and develop their worldview from the books and the magazines and the articles and the conversations they have. They have a family in which they're interacting with. They have a job, work that they go to and, and do their thing. And they have a community that they live in, whether it's an apartment, a condo, or even a HOA, a house. They have relationships in their life in which they're interacting with people and making friends. They have, obviously, this is America, a financial aspect to their life their savings, their debt, their retirement, whatever it is. They have hobbies. might not be piano for you. It might be biking or hiking or sewing or something like that, but we all have things that we love to do. And then because you're a Christian, you have church. And so you have a well-rounded life as Christian. Why? Things to be, seem to be going so well because you live in a great country and a great community and you, you've included God in it and Christianity and all of that. But at the center of your life, the one calling the shots is you. That's why we call this Christian why. Because if God, see, well, God sees it, if other people could see what God sees, they would see that though everything looks fine on the outside, you wake up every day and you take the wheel, you take the bull by the horns, you essentially don't say this to God, but what your attitude is toward God is I got everything under control. If I need you, I'll let you know. And I might check in by about noon when I pray for my lunch or when I need help with this decision. But other than that, I'm doing just fine, God. 
And that's the way so many Christians function. They are on the throne. They are in control of their lives. And we think everything's fine. Larry Crabb, by the way, calls this good enough Christianity. You're living a good enough life to please those around you. But the reality is, is that you're not submitted to his lordship. And you know it and God knows it. So here's what Christian uh, cross or Christian C looks like. Very similar. Christian C has an intellectual life and a family life and a work life and a community life and a relational life and they got money and they got hobbies and they go to church. But at the center of their life, and you know people like this, is Jesus. They are what Larry Crabb calls God-obsessed people who are learning to fight the battle well. These are people who have made a decision in their life, the same decision I'm asking you to make today, to submit each moment of each day as best you can, we're we're not perfect, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to his leadership, and, and consciously to yield the right of way to him each moment of each day. Got a business decision you need to make? You yield that one to the Lord. And having a rough time with your spouse, you yield that one to the Lord. Kids taking stupid pills again, you yield that one to the Lord. You're interacting with your neighbor and you're wondering, wow, how can I have a, even a spiritual conversation with them if that's even on your radar? You yield that one to the Lord. And in just having a yielded heart to the Lord, watch this, these things start to become, at least for you, very different. You start to think differently and relate differently and see your job differently and your community differently. Your relationships start to take on a a new wonderful edge. You approach money differently. And though you still look very similar on the outside, on the inside, where things matter most, something is changing. And as I wrote about in my book last year, joy just might start to well up in your life in a way that you never thought possible. And here's the deal when it comes to his lordship. And I don't mean to make this a downer. I really don't. But this is reality stuff for all of us. And that is that only you know if he is lord of your life or not. Does that make sense to you? It's so easy to fake. How do we know it's easy to fake? Because I do it more often than I want to. There are times where I'm living in silent rebellion to God stubborn in my heart against some things that he's trying to do in my life. And yet then I'll meet Gil. I'm here in church. I was like, hey, brother Gil, how you doing today? Oh, and the joy of the Lord looks alive in you today. And I'm doing well too. And what did I just do? I faked it until I try to make it. The only problem is I'm not making it very well. And Christians do that all the time. We fool each other into thinking that we're more spiritual, that we're doing better than we really are. And God is nauseated at that. He'd rather have us at least be honest about where we're at, which is the kind of community we've developed here, but then also each be striving for a level of lordship in our lives in which Jesus truly has his way in our lives each moment of each day. You know, many of you know I uh, became a Christian, uh, having not grown up in a Christian home, 
uh, almost 40 years ago, it'll be March 11th, uh, 1981, that I accepted the Lord. And that date is, is written for me, as my friend Dave Hall and I have talked about. I mean, it's a, a date that I know because I was living in darkness. I was living a very decadent and rebellious life. And I was a junior in high school and somebody explained the gospel to me and boom, made sense to me. I mean, God forgiving my sins and, and, and wanting to walk with him and Jesus my Savior. So I accepted the Lord that night, clearly, March 11th, 1981. But there's another date that you guys don't know as much about. The date is November 23rd, 1982. And if you do the math, November 23rd, 1982 was about two days before Thanksgiving, 1982, 20 months after I accepted the Lord. You're wondering, why is that date important? (laughs) Because you see, after I accepted the Lord as a junior in high school, it took me about 20 months to finally submit to his lordship. I know that doesn't fit some of your theology. It fits mine very well. That you can come to believe in Jesus, but it takes time to start turning things over to him. Amen? And it did for me. Some people do it all in one swell swoop. You know, he's my savior and Lord, boom, everything's his. It didn't work that way for me. And for 20 months, I lived a rather self-satisfied, self-sufficient life. But here's the deal. I know that I was saved because I felt very convicted by the things that I did. I felt very bad for those things. And every time I would go out and sin, and it was quite often, I would feel this welling up of guilt that I didn't feel before March 11th, 1981, which tells me the Holy Spirit was living in me, convicting me each moment of each day of the things that I was doing. And it became so bad at one point, this is a true story, that I was a freshman in college, I was gonna go to visit some buddies of mine at Miami University in Southern Ohio, and we were gonna party all weekend. And I knew I was gonna party, I knew I was gonna sin, I knew that what I was gonna do was not right, but, but I decided to, to pack my Bible anyways in case things really went south. Now that's pretty pathetic, that you're packing a Bible in your suitcase, even though you're not living by that book, just in case things get really bad. That was the state of my soul. And what happened on November 23rd, 1982, is that I had enough, enough was enough, and I went home after a night of partying, sobered up, and I said, God, I'm not going to live a duplicitous life anymore. Jesus is my Savior. Now my life is yours, and I'm putting that stuff behind me. And I remember even the next day, some of my friends said to me that were believers, you know, hey, hey, you know what, you might slip. I mean, you know, don't, don't be too confident about this. I said, you know, you don't get it. He is Lord of my life. And again, since that day, gang, I have struggled with things, never with booze or anything like that again, but I have struggled with the flesh. But something was very different after November 23rd, 1982. I made a decision that day, the same decision I'm asking you to contemplate, where I said, come hell, and I mean that literally, come hell or high water, he is my Lord, he is my all in all, and my life is submitted to him. And all I can tell you is that since that day, again, November 23rd, 1982, not my salvation day, my submission day, since that day, things have been different. Not always easy, I don't always feel close, but I know in my heart of hearts that I'm under the umbrella of his lordship in my life. Imagine what would happen if six to 7,000 people decided to commit to that as a New Year's resolution. Spiritually speaking, there would be no stopping us. When it comes to the loss, when it comes to our church, there'd be no stopping us when it comes to impacting our community and living for God. 
if we would all submit to his lordship. It's that important of an issue. Now, we're going to have a commitment time in a minute here, but once we cement this first resolution in our lives, here is why we need to have more resolutions. Because I know how some of you think. The real spiritual among us tend to think, well, if we just do this first one, Jamie, then we need no other resolution because if you're submitted to his lordship, everything else will fall into place. How many of you have ever heard a Christian talk something like that? Many of us have. You guys awake? Come on, it's not lunch yet. How many of you have ever heard a Christian talk like that? Many of us have. Well, here's the reason that we need more resolutions even after his lordship, and that is that it's very possible to be submitted to God, to to be looking to him, to be walking with him, but ignore other aspects of this life and this world. We all know people like that who seem very sober and serious on a spiritual level, but when it comes to their horizontal relationships or how they interact with others, they're not very good at that. Anybody know a Christian like that? Many of us do. It's like the little English girl who prayed. I love this prayer. She said, oh God, please make the bad people good and the good people nice. See, that's part of the problem with Christianity, right? is that we have all these people out there that are striving to be good, but they're what Mark Twain called good in the worst sort of way. And so how do we deal with that? Well, here's the second New Year's resolution. Again, first person singular I think we should make. And that is that I will love others more than myself. I will love others more than myself. And here's the nature of the second resolution. I think some of you, especially some of you men, will agree with me on this. And that is that I personally find this one a gazillion times more difficult than the first one. Can I get an amen? I'm serious. I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, I don't find it complicated nor even all that difficult to make the choice to submit to Jesus Christ in my life. It's me and him, man, and I can do that. I'm not a wuss about it. I'm serious about my faith, and I'm going to submit to him. It's where I live. It's what I do. But then when you say to me, oh, by the way, you need to be so selfless and not self-centered as to love others more than yourself today in each and every relational interaction you have, oh, my gosh, that's a lot harder than the first one, A a lot harder than the first one. You know, here's why this is so hard. Some of you right now are even thinking, well, it's not that hard for me. Well, I'm going to show you it actually is. In the fallen world that we live in, especially in the me-centered fallen culture that we happen to find ourselves in, there's a big difference between what we're going to call right now biblical love versus what we might call Hallmark love, Valentine's Day love, Dr. Phil love, Oprah love. I mean, the love that our world talks about. Here would be the distinction. The world says that the best kind of love is a I will love you if love, where the Bible says we need to have I will love you like love. What's the difference? I will love you if is the kind of world that our kind of love our world talks about. I will love you if you love me back. I will love you if you behave. I will love you if you meet my needs. I will love you if you make me happy. Love is a contractual relationship our world says. And if you, if you meet me halfway in it, then we can have love. But if not, then you go your way, I go my way. That, that's the best that our world really has. The Bible knows nothing about that kind of love. Whoop, go back. But to call it sinful, go back. The Bible says that we need to love each other like. You're saying like what? Well, we need to love each other like God 
loves us. We need to love each other like Jesus loves us and taught us to love. We need to love each other like the Bible outlines. Here's one example of how the Bible, now we can go to the slide, outlines love. 1 Corinthians 13, the tragedy is this verse appears on Hallmark cards. We've kind of watered it down a little bit, but let's make it more rugged. It says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then it goes on to say, love never fails. <laughs> now maybe you'll see why I find this an incredibly more difficult challenge than the first resolution. I, I have a friend of mine who has done something fascinating with this verse. It's kind of weird. He's an engineer and he's really into the fact that Christians need to up their ante on love. And so as an engineer, I wrote about this in my book, he, he, he years ago wrote an app just for himself. You won't find it, I don't think, on, on the Apple store. But he wrote a very simple app in which he took every one of these traits, patience, kindness, not envying or boasting, not being uh, proud or arrogant or rude, you know, being selfless. And, and he put them as a, on this app. And, and at the end of each day, he rates himself from one to 10. And if he has trouble with his analysis, you ready for this, Frank? He asks his wife to help him rating each day how he did when it comes to just these five or six verses. And he's brutal in his analysis. And his only goal, because it's a one to 10 rating, is to try to get it up into the higher level scale over time. Some of you are going, that would just be a terrible thing to do every day. Well, it would if you're not really interested in biblical love. The reality is, is that God calls you and I to have the kind of love for each other that is markedly different than the world, and then to have the kind of love for the world that they would almost know nothing about. I've defined unconditional love for years this way, agape love. Let me see if we can get to that screen here. Unconditional love definition as this, that it's love without strings attached, love with no ifs, ands or buts. Because again, the world's love is all about if. I'll love you if. I'll love you and you do this. I'll love you, but if you do this, I won't. See, that's the world's type. The Bible says we need to love each other and then the world in an unconditional way. And just so that we're clear, gang, this was such a radical departure, even from the Greek, Greco-Roman world that Jesus appeared in, that Jesus described it this way when he first gave us this commandment to love. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love or have love for one another. I've wrestled for years what Jesus means by a new commandment. I mean, if I was one of the disciples back then, I'd say, come on, Jesus, uh, the Greeks and Romans believe in love. They've invented four words for it. Uh, the Old Testament talks about love. I mean, they pine away the virtues of loving kindness all the time. So how can your command be a new command? And the answer is relatively simple. And that's that Jesus was upping the ante on the kind of love that he wants from his followers. Namely, and this is our resolution, that I will love others even more than myself. And again, I don't think any of us will ever be perfect at that. But that's the kind of love 
that will change hearts. That's the kind of love that brings healing to people's lives. That's the kind of love that when you're loved that way, you never ever forget it. This was a, a rather difficult week for our church. Many of you don't know it because the office was closed, but our pastors were not closed. They are always on. And uh, this week, I don't know why this happens at Christmas time at times, but we had uh, three tragedies in our church this week. We had a suicide, uh, and we had uh, one of our saints go home, uh, an older saint, and then we had a 40 some old old father who was out hiking that had an accident. You might have read about it in the news, and, and uh, he passed away from a hiking accident, and, and this family's in our church. So it was a real rough church, kept our pastors, a rough week, uh, keeping our pastors busy. At one point, I was uh, texting the wife of the, the husband who passed away and just checking in to see how she is doing and what more we could do as a church for her. And, and she essentially texted back, said, I'm doing okay, and, and then gave me a line that I wrote down because it was so meaningful about what's happening around this place. And that is that she said, and this is a quote, my SBC family is amazing. Because even in the midst of tragedy, I mean awful tragedy, somebody going home to the Lord way too young. She felt the love, the surrounding, the care of the body of Christ. And here's what you need to know, gang, that's the way it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work that way, we're not perfect, but that's the way it's supposed to work. That you and I are supposed to go through difficult things in our life, death, a divorce, a kid who disappoints us greatly, financial difficulty, you name it. Think about the things that we happen. And we don't go through those being judged or harassed or shunned. We go through those being loved in a way that the world knows nothing about. And when that happens, you're gonna be tempted to text your pastor and say, my SBC family is amazing. Because that's the kind of love that God is after. Dream with me about what would happen if our church had the commitment to love each other and then love the world more than they do themselves. Now, you might be able to see now why these New Year's resolutions are the ones that matter and the ones we can do. Jesus is Lord, others as the priority with our love. And then one third and final one. Again, there's, there's hundreds I could give you, but one third and final one that I think will matter greatly for where we are as a church right now, moving into 2019. And that is, again, first person singular, I will develop a heart for the lost. I will develop a heart for the lost. You're saying, what, what do you mean by that? I mentioned earlier that we live in a day and age, a town in which so many people are seemingly not interested in spiritual things or the spiritual things that they are interested in. I'm going to talk about this next month as we talk about our culture are quite frankly wrong and not very accurate. And so there are a lot of people in culture today that the Bible calls lost. It's not my term, it's the Bible's term. Jesus talked about this all the time. Look at one of the stories he told in Luke 15. He says, and he, Jesus, told them, the religious leaders of his day, this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep, which was, say the word with me. See, Jesus is making a point here. 
He's saying that I'm the shepherd, meaning him, and that I have sheep, meaning creation. Trust me, I've studied this passage backwards and forwards. And that there are some of my creation, it's a lot more than just one, but for this story it's one, that is lost. And what he's trying to communicate here are these three things. He's trying to communicate that something of great value is lost, my creation, those that I made and loved but are living rebellious lives, and that there's an all-out search that God is on for what is lost, and that when that thing is found or when that person is found, there's a huge celebration when what is lost is now found. And here's what you need to grab onto, kind of the last little exegetical piece of our day. And that is that when Jesus first told this story, you got to kind of put yourself in a first century mindset. Everybody and their brother had sheep. You'd use them for wool, you'd eat them, you'd sacrifice them. I mean, sheep were like dogs today. I mean, they were just all over the place. And most people didn't consider them that valuable. So when Jesus adds value to the sheep, and then says there's all out search to find it. And then when he finally says, and he called all his friends and neighbors and had a celebration, people are going, this is a stupid analogy. I mean, honestly, it'd be like today. Here's the analogy today. Me saying that I have this valuable, valuable cell phone and, and that, that I lost my cell phone and I went on an all-out search to find my cell phone. And when I finally found it, I called all my friends over to my house and I said, let's have a party because my cell phone, which was lost, is now found. That would, you'd go, that's a dumb illustration, Jamie. But that's exactly the illustration Jesus gave here. Why? Because he knows that there are many of us that look at seven billion people in this world and we do not care that they are lost. We do not care that they are bound for a Christless eternity. We see them as just one of many, 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 many numbers like a sheep or a cell phone. He's trying to say heaven does not see them that way. Heaven sees every lost person as mattering to God. Heaven's eyes though are on us this morning in Cactus Venue and Chapel, heaven's eyes are on you. Do you realize that heaven wants to celebrate not the fact that we sing songs, not the fact that you guys heard a really good sermon today, not the fact that, that you made it to church, all those are good things. What heaven really wants to celebrate, and this is what the church's mission is, is for a lost person to come home to God, for God to find the lost ones. And here's the cool thing, he wants to use us in the process. And that's why I said earlier that we are in the most prime position. I've been here, I'm on my 12th year here at Scott Survival Church. Guess what? There's not been a time in the history of my tenure with you guys as your pastor in which we are more primed to reach lost people, to have God use us than we are right now. Northridge has now combined with us. We have three campuses, three venues on this campus. You're gonna see in a couple of weeks, we've created some space. But I beg you, please don't fill that space with somebody from Redemption Church or somebody from Christ Church of the Valley who's already saved, already knows the Lord and you convince them that your church is better than theirs. Please do not do that because there's nothing in our mission or vision statement about that. Our mission and vision is win, build, send. We wanna win people to faith in Christ, build them up in the faith and then send us each out to be winners and builders and all of you have influenced that way. And so if ever there was a time, and we're going to do a special series next year on the fall in January, just outlining where culture is in light of the fall. It's going to be super, super friendly to those who haven't been in church in a while. But, but if there's a time for you to invite somebody to church, now is the time to do that. 
We have about five minutes left before we uh, are going to release you back into culture. And uh, before we do so, I want to engage right now in a, in a time of commitment. You're saying, well, we'll commit to what? Uh, John Ortberg coined a great phrase years ago when it comes to New Year's resolutions. I love this phrase. He said, habits eat willpower for breakfast. Do you understand that? Habits eat willpower. What he's saying is, is that most of us approach the things we want to change in our life with willpower. We're, we're kind of like Dorothy trying to get back, you know, from Oz. You know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, clicking our heels together. And, and Orbrook says, you're, you're not going to ever overcome things by willpower. Every New Year's resolution shows that. No, you're going to overcome it through a habit. Developing a daily practice that you ingrain into your life. And over time, as you practice these things, they will become habitual. And habits eat willpower for breakfast. So here's the three habits I'm asking you to consider today. I'm asking you to make a habit of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus every day into your life. I'm asking you to make a habit of striving to love others more than yourself. I'm asking you to make a habit to develop a heart for the lost in our community. See, I think if we have as a church these three habits, there's no stopping us. We've made ourselves wide open to God in a way that will deeply matter and allow us to be deeply used by him. So here's what I want to do as we wrap up today. I want us all to do a little bit of business with God ourselves and yet I want to know how to pray intelligently for you. So I want every head bowed here right now. Every head. You're, don't worry, you're going to stay in your seat. Every head bowed here right now. Cactus, venue, and chapel. Even those of you online, bow your head right now, please. And, uh, and, and we're going to approach the Lord together as a church, but also individually. And, and so let me know who and what I'm praying for. If you today are going to commit to the lordship of Jesus in your life. I want you to raise your hand where you sit right now. Praise God, if that happens, there's no stopping us. You can put your hand down. If you resonated with this idea of love like I do, where you realize you have great capacity to love more in a self-centered way and an other-centered way that can turn heads and bring healing, raise your hand right now for those of you who need prayer when it comes to love. Good, you can put your hand down. And then lastly, what touches the heart of God more than anything else, this idea of a lost person being found by him. If that is a commitment of your heart, that you will develop more of a passion for the lost as we move forward as a church, raise your hand right now, please. Okay, God bless you. Okay, every hand down, every head bowed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I believe this is a very holy moment here at Scottsdale Bible Church in the worship center, in the venue, in the chapel, and Lord, certainly those watching online and at Cactus Campus. God, I pray that as we come before you right now, each individually, but also together as a whole, that you would hear the cry of our hearts, that you would honor the commitment that we are making here today. Lord, we've talked from your word about how Colossians 1 says that you want uh, your, the lordship of your son to have first place in everything in our lives. And there's some of us here today, Lord, that are making that decision as I did back in November 23rd, 1982. And I pray, Lord, that as their hearts make a commitment today, their minds to submit to your lordship beginning tonight when they go to bed and tomorrow when they wake up, that, Father, you would honor that commitment. Hound them by your spirit, I pray. Remind them of this. Bring to mind the commitment they made and the indwelling of you in their lives. And I pray, God, that this would be a day that they remember the resolution they made to submit to your lordship. May that increase in their lives over the next coming year. 
Lord, for those of us who made a commitment to love more, I know that's my great need. God, I pray that you would help us to be the type of men and women who care more about those around us than we do in a self-obsessed way about ourselves. And that, God, you would bring to mind the needs of others and humble ourselves before them. And, God, give us the capacity by your spirit to be other-centered in all that we say and do. And, God, continue to have patience with us in the process, I would pray. And, Father, for those of us here today that are making a commitment to remember the loss, to have more room in our minds and lives for them. God, may we not be impatient with them. May we not be angry with them. But God, may we show Romans 2, 4 to them that your kindness leads to repentance. That it's your kindness and love that draws them to you. May we be vehicles of that. And may we make room in our lives for the lost, I pray. And may we remember our resolution today. God, I think of the Bible where it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Today, Lord, we are saying yes to either one or more of these three things, to your lordship, to love, and to the lost. Bring those to our mind. Honor these commitments we make here today. We love you and are grateful for your salvation in our lives. We're grateful for our church. In Jesus' name I pray. And we all say together, amen. Amen.